0: This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Thanks to this episode's sponsor, LLC TLC. They are just doing an incredible job saving you money on your registration. Be sure to register your vehicles, airplanes, boats, street legal, side-by-sides, and trailers to your own Montana LLC, and you will pay $0 in sales tax. So go to llctlc.com for more information. Welcome back to the Collector Car Podcast. This is going to be a fun one. This is the first time I've done this, and i like to welcome Josh Stegman. Josh, how are you doing?
1: Greg, how are you? Thank you for uh, having me come back on again.
0: Yeah, yeah, you did a great job when we did our hammer price, or whatever I called it, I guess the hammer. And uh, now you're a car specialist manager of sales for MotorVault. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes, we are a collector car dealership Out of Indianapolis, Indiana, we focus on consignment sales, and we have everything from a 1933 Dodge Rat Rod, to air-cooled Porsches, to muscle cars, to modern sports cars, and we also are representing the world's first 1970 Plymouth Hemi Cuda, uh, which is an unrestored pre-production car. So we've got a little bit of everything.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I wanted you on the podcast again, because you have a lot of knowledge about cars, and I asked you, basically, what do you want to talk about? And, and in my mind, I was thinking future classics, which you jumped right on that. And you get, you sent me a list. Turns out it's 11 cars. So we're going to have a six that are hot and five that are not, which I think is great. That way we're starting positive and we're ending positive.
1: And yes. so this is the first <laughs>
0: episode of Hot or Not. Now, this is the future classics edition, which it's not really future classics. It's really what do you think is hot right now? What do you think is not hot right now? And we're going to go back and forth on this because I really like the list that you picked out. And I'm going to, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll have some pictures, not necessarily tied exactly to what you're talking about, but it'll be the same general style or taste of car, I guess is the best way. So the first one I have is, you picked as hot, was 1980s and 1990s AMG cars. So Mercedes AMG cars. Obviously, I had to yes. pull up the big car we had at, uh, I think it was our Miami sale for RM Sotheby's. So Tell me, why is this hot uh, right now? Like, what, What's driving this?
1: Well, I, I think the right Radwood era cars are really hitting a sweet spot. The right people who grew up with them or at least had them as a car they really wanted. Those people are really starting to come into money. There's an extremely, extremely small number of those cars. And the absolutely pure but boxy, and sexy look of those 80s and 90s AMG cars, especially the 560 uh, SEC in particular, the wide body car. Those are very, very, very desirable right now. Those, I mean, a low mile one of those, you can't touch for under 200 grand.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm showing a picture of the one that broke records, I think it was at our Miami sales. Was was it the hammer?
1: Was Was it the the sedan?
0: This is the wide body, the 560 SEC. Uh, Our estimate was 225 to 275, and it hammered for 720. (laughs) So, triple, almost, let me do my math in my head. Yes, triple low estimate, which you rarely ever hear that happening. So, to your point, yeah, this was in Miami last year. This is the right time to sell the cars. There was also a pre AMG 500 SL, which I didn't know existed, honestly. You know, it's kind of like the 560 SL two door Roadster a 500 european spec and it hammered for i think 291 thousand dollars. the estimate was like 90 grand so it really speaks to what you're talking about there that next generation collector multiples of them bidding and going after the same car right
1: yeah oh yeah no that's exactly what it is and again they're they're a great driver's car too that's the other thing i think that helps is that they're a really really enjoyable driver's car because there's a lot of cars from the 60s 70s 80s they look cool, they have the nostalgia, but they don't necessarily drive great. That's one thing about those AMGs, is they are a very, very pure, very silky smooth, great torque, great brakes. You know, they're a very user-friendly car. If you wanted to daily them in a good weather area, you probably could. Um, but I think that's just kind of the icing on the cake for those cars.
0: Now, if anyone's interested in one of these, I do have a private sale opportunity for a 1982 500SL with only 35,000 miles. What's really cool about this particular one is it has an escort radar detector built into the console from the factory, which is super cool. Talk about a period piece. So very cool car. That is definitely hot. Now your next one, we're going to go in the negative lane here. We're going to pick out something that's not hot right now. And you, you said entry level pre-war car. So tell me about that and to illustrate it, this is not an entry level one, but I'm picking a pre-war car here. This is a 1931 Auburn uh custom cabriolet. Now this one is not what you're talking about because this does have the 8. No. But uh <laughs> tell us what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so I I really think that with that era of car, there's a smaller and smaller, a dwindling market for that group of cars. And if, especially if it's a six cylinder, a four cylinder va- variant, so like a, you know, a 30s Buick six cylinder sedan, the desirability for those cars is very, very small. I still think they're cool. I would love to have something like that. But there's still a decent amount of those cars out there. And with them not being a real full, full sized classic uh, and having the smaller amount of power, not as driver friendly. And not the great grand presence of the big cars like the Packard 8s, like the Cadillac V12s, you know, the Auburn 8s, stuff like that. I mean, that's that's the stuff from a pre-war standpoint that will always be desirable because it's an art form. But also right. it still has good power and it's still very usable. Um, and I, I think just the, the non-coach built, the standard built, uh, very, very basic pre-war cars. There's just such a small market for those cars right now. I mean, I was up in Auburn. Oh, what was that? About three weeks ago, and I could definitely see that stuff was weaker because there were some really, really, really pretty cars that were selling for fifteen to thirty thousand dollars, and I was absolutely surprised. Um, you know, given the condition and given just the way they look, but just that's just the the way I think the market for those cars are going.
0: Right. No, I totally agree with you. You know, usability is such a big thing, and these cars, even with the big engine, aren't as usable as you would want them to be just because they're old cars, you know, they're almost right. 100 years old. So there's their own challenges uh, even with the big engine cars. And so you go right. to that next level down, I could see them being less desirable. So I totally agree with you on that one. The next next one is something that's hot and you said resto mod 4x4s. Now I picked yeah. up if you can see my screen here, I went to Gateway Bronco website because they do some of the craziest nicest Resto mod Broncos out there right now that'll cost you a very pretty penny. They actually have a configurator as well. So, what are your thoughts on Resto Mod 4x4s? Let me actually, before you do that, I will agree with you. Uh, I will say I think the FJs might be getting a little tired because they've been doing that for such a long time, so many companies. But give me your thoughts.
1: Yeah, um there are those cars, those SUVs, the four by fours. They're so cool. So many people loved them. So many people had them. And when you're able to put all this modern drivability technology and give them a styling update, the pool of people that want something like that is so, so high. They look good. They sound great. And I I really think it's going to sound wild, but with the rest of mod Mustangs, the rest of mod Corvettes, your iconic restomod muscle cars popping off the next thing to go would be the trucks and the four by fours and the trucks went before the four by fours and if you think about it a four by four you could if you really want to you could go out to the dunes and run it you can go off-road it it's something that if you you know don't want to sit in a museum and just take to a show you can go out and properly exercise it and have a really, really good time. So I think it's just the nice comp, you know, the nice package of drivability, of style, um, and of being an iconic, very, very desirable piece already across many, many different generations. Because people my age love it, and I'm 26. People my age love them, and people that are 80 that love them. So, so there's a huge, huge pool of people for that.
0: Now just to tell you kind of the money we're talking about here I'm looking at the Gateway Bronco this blows my mind. The base edition starts at 180 grand. The picture they oh, have yeah. as equipped is $250,000. The Coyote edition starts at 250 grand. Now that's I'm assuming yep. that's with the Coyote engine. As shown, $332,000 and then you have the Lux GT edition starts at $400,000. As shown, this particular one $662,000 for a sport ute. That is just insane money. And I know at Barrett Jackson, they're knocking these prices down all the time, you know, for all sorts of resto mods, whether they're sport utes or not. So the market's there. Like you said, I I find what will be fascinating is when these are eight years old, you know, when they're a used resto mod, what is that marketplace? going to look like what are the valuation trends going to be on one of these maybe by then i can finally afford one right <laughs> yes
1: and real quick before you go to the next car i i think there's a couple interesting things to watch with this i think the international scouts are heavily heavily overlooked i think they're one of the best looking four by fours of all time um there are not as many of them out there and I know of one of them getting restomodded here locally in Indy. That's currently being built. We sold the project of what the core of it was to the current owner, who's having it done. And it's going to be wicked. It's going to be very, very cool. Um, and we actually just got in on consignment, a two hundred and fifty thousand plus dollar build, nineteen seventy three Bronco. Uh, with the Coyote, a 6R80, and every bit of goodness that you want on those. Silver metallic, actually, it's a Red Bull silver, uh, black trim, black wheels. It looks absolutely wicked. So that's a, that's another 200-plus K Bronco easily.
0: It's funny because I did go to, I think it's called Classic Broncos up in Columbus, Ohio, and they do a really great job. And what's really fascinating there is they don't even worry about, there's some old Broncos I back. They don't even worry about that. They don't want any of that. They want just the chassis, you know, because they said it's a whole lot easier to just put on reproduction body panels and tubs than it is to fix metal. So if you go into the packs, there's just stacks of these chassis that they've got. And and that's what they start with because everything else is new on those. So yeah, yeah, fascinating. All right. So next we're going to go to a not, not hot right now. You said stock 1950s American cars. So for this illustration, I picked a gorgeous 1957 Dodge Custom Royal Lancer that is coming up in RM Sotheby's Hershey sale next week. Actually, by the time this is released, it will have already sold. But this thing is absolutely stunning. The price on this one's 50 to 60 grand. Tell us your thoughts. Well,
1: um I'm... I would say with these cars, again, I think the mods are really shifting the market. Because if you see the 1950s big body American classics, if you see the Bel Airs, you know, if you see the Chryslers, if you see um, you know the, the 57 Fords, whatever it may be, if you see a really, really cool restomodded version of one of these cars, they bring really, really, really strong money. And I think that is impacting the original cars just because so many of them had been restored to original or left as original where there wasn't much creativity. And now the creativity side of that is being brought out. And, uh, and again, it really comes down to, yeah, they're cool to drive, but they still, they're wonky steering, you know, they float all over the road. They've got squishy brakes and, it's not all of these cars. Like again, a bone stock '59 Cadillac Eldorado Biarritz. I mean, that's always going to be a big money car. That will continue to grow. I mean, that's a that's a poster car. But you know, like a you know, just like a '53 Chrysler, you know, New Yorker sedan, you know, standard car, something like that. Again, it's there was a lot of them made. Uh, they kind of fall into a weird market it's like yeah your grandparents had one there's gonna be some desirability there but you know where's that extra extra oomph gonna come from and from people my age or even a little bit older than myself you know we we get we see charm in those cars we really like them but again it's finding parts for them it's trying mm-hmm. to keep them on the road and at that point it's like well I would rather use that $20,000 on a really cool 80s or 90s sports car that I know that's going to go up in value, drive better and have better parts availability. So I think that's where a lot of that shift is coming.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you. A big part of it is the generational shift as well. I mean, I always, I've said it many times on the podcast, anyone who dreamt of having a 1957 T-Bird is selling their 1957 T-Bird, at least if not now, right. they've already sold it, you know? And right. so I think that goes to what you're saying here as well. When someone says, hey, that looks like a cool car, and then they drive it, they're like, holy cow, this thing drives horrible. So, you know, mm-hmm. I can see them being like, all right, yeah, the rest of mod is the answer. That's what we you do n- want, you know? You know what amazes
1: me, and it still baffles me, you very rarely see resto modded 57 Thunderbirds. It's absolutely shocking because this the body lines on a 55 to 57, especially, in my opinion, the 57 Thunderbird, it is one of the prettiest, sexiest American cars of all time. And the fact that so many of those cars are bone stock. And I think that's the reason why so many of them are, is that so many of them got restored and they put so much money into them. Yeah. They don't want to modify it and re-restore it. So I think the next level of people who are going to buy those cars are going to start modifying. And if they get start getting modified, I mean, not all of them. I mean, you don't want to touch an F-code car. You don't want to touch an yeah. E-code car. But a basic 312, 245 horse car. I don't see an issue in taking out the drivetrain, putting a Roadster shop chassis underneath it, putting a five-speed Tremec in there, putting a Coyote, and adjusting the seat and steering wheel issue. And you've got an absolutely wicked, wicked cool car that I would I would personally rather have a 57 resto modded t-bird than a uh late 80s american bumper coontosh which is a weird comparison i know we'll get to the coontoshes in a minute but i would love to see that happen personally i think it would cause a huge spark again for the 57 t-bird
0: yeah no no that's a good point i've only seen one or two modified ones and they engine blue so they put in a 50 mustang engine from the 80s basically is all it was so Yep. All right. Well, speaking of Kuntoshes, let's move on. So hot Kuntoshes, Lamborghini Kuntosh. Yep. Now I'm bringing up one that is a Sotheby's sealed uh, auction we have going on up here. Um, yeah. So tell us about that. One can make the argument these are always hot, but you have it on that. You know what? They're hot right now, even more so than normal. So tell us why.
1: And I don't think that'll stop. I think there's a couple of reasons. We've obviously seen them explode the last couple of years. And... Obviously, it's known they are not the best driving cars in the world. (laughs) No. But but from a look standpoint and iconic standpoint, the Lamborghini Countach is one of the single most recognizable cars ever produced, period. You go up to someone who doesn't know squat about cars and you show them a photo of a Countach with the scissor doors up. And you ask them what is this, and they will say it's a Lamborghini. Yeah, and the posterization of that car, with how much that car from the mid '70s through the late '80s had an impact on so many people, people's lives. That is the absolute ultimate. I have done it. I am here. I am showing that you know all my buddies. Hey. I've got the Coontage. What do you have? You know, that, yeah. that is the, the ultimate trump card. And it, I think that's one reason why they sparked. Obviously, they're used in many movies. But I, another, another reason why I think they're going to continue staying strong is the fact of gated manual transmissions. Those are huge. We're seeing what's going on with the Merch Liagos, especially if they're gated manual. Those things are stupid, crazy valuable. They can't touch one of those for under three hundred and fifty, four hundred dollars 400000 right now. And I think the reintroduction of the new Kuntash, even though there is some kind of debate on whether it's really a Countach or not, um, I think the new Kuntash Count sparks some serious nostalgia especially when people expect the new kountosh to match their 70s or 80s kountosh and they put the photos of them together and it's just uh, i mean how can you not love that
0: <laughs> yeah i've mentioned it before on this podcast the 1983 kountosh was the very first supercar i ever saw in person back in 1983. it blew me away because it looked like a spaceship if you're watching online the wow. one i'm showing ironically, it's a right-hand drive version, which is interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen a right-hand drive Countach before, but I agree with you. Uh, I have a client, he's got a Diablo. He said the Diablo is so much better, and yet he would never sell his Countach. He said it drives like a grain truck, but he's never going to sell it because it's such an iconic, incredible design. Exactly. I totally agree with you on that. All right, next, not hot. Now, this isn't quite fair because the one I'm Pulling up as an example was a world record price, but it was a very special one. Not hot, <laughs> Ferrari 488. So uh, at Monterey, we had this crazy 2020 488 Pista Palate Ferrari that was only offered to folks that were in the challenge program. Uh, and so it was very rare, very cool, sold for a ton of money. But you're saying these are not hot right now, so tell us why. They're
1: regular 488s. Not I agree. The, the, I
0: totally not agree. The that's the right. quality card this is not this is not fair, but yes, I agree.
1: and And this for me is kind of a little bit of a hot take. Um, some people will agree with this. some people won't. Um, I personally think Ferrari went I, I almost think they downgraded when they went from the four fifty eight to the four eighty eight. I understood why they did what they did. They changed the styling. yes, they had to. I don't think they changed it enough. And on top of that, you went from a naturally aspirated V8 to a twin-turbo V8. Well, if you look back 15, 20 years ago, twin turbos were a really cool thing. All right now, everybody does twin turbos, and it definitely muffles the sound, and it muscle, and it muffles the raw, pure experience of a V8 mid-engine Ferrari. I mean, obviously, unless you're talking about an F40, but that's a whole different ballgame. But I I think the 458 will always hold better than the 488 from a styling standpoint and from a drivetrain standpoint. And with that being said, I don't really think the 488s, the regular ones, will really be a good hold or investment car um, because everyone will always look back to the 458. So I don't think we have seen the 488s drop But if there is an economic correction that does happen, I think the 488 will be one of the first cars that will go down significantly.
0: Right. I would agree with that. Yeah. I think, you know, the last of the aspirated is what everybody wants. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, that could be anything right now, you know, Um, and 488 just happens to be the last or 458 is and it was i always loved the 458s i thought they were gorgeous so yeah i could see that yeah all right hot we have five more here hot we got the porsche 993 now this is another one i picked from a special one from uh, monterey this is a 1997 turbo s i just pulled up for uh, visual purposes but tell us why is the 993 so hot right now
1: they were always overlooked and they are a very very pretty peer. they're not in your face design and i i just think that the prior generation the the air cooled the 930s the 3.2 carreras everybody has loved those for so long and in reality from a driving standpoint from what I understand is the 993 is actually a better driving car. I know the 964 is in between that, but I really think that the 993 has just been so heavily overlooked and now they're finally getting appreciated because everybody's gone through the air cooled phase and, and it's, it's that nice in between between obviously the 964 was very similar to the Late 80s Porsches, you know, is very much that, you know, raw to the ground feel. But when you started adding the late 90s technology, especially with Porsche, they really started advancing. And I think there, it just hits that really nice sweet spot where there's a lot of great mid-90s to early 2000s sports cars that just has a completely different dri- driving dynamic where it's very connected, but it has enough technology where it still feels modern, but it doesn't. You know, like right. the Ferrari 550 Barquetta, or um, I know I know that's one for sure. I know there's, I mean, even the C5 Corvette, for instance, it was such a leap over the C4 uh, from a driving standpoint. New brakes, new chassis, new everything. It felt like a completely different car. So I think that group of sports cars, and especially ones that are low mile, well documented, nice specs be a really really good solid car. We just got in a 55,000 mile Guards red over 10 uh 993 and uh, my boss and I both very much are excited to have that one in the shop. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, I've always loved the look of them. I remember they had the Kill's Bugs fast the maroon one, the poster where it was taken off with the huge whale tail. I that's always had a soft spot in my heart for those and I have also Notice that as well, rumblings of that. All right. Next. Not hot. Now this is interesting. So I, I picked something coming up from RM sotheby's Hershey sale, and it's actually a pretty cool hot rod. But you're saying outdated customs are not hot. yeah I again I totally agree with you for my own reasons, but let me hear yours first and I'll tell you why I think this is a very interesting trend you hit on here.
1: Yep. And we kind of were starting to hint on that earlier after we were talking about the rest mod four by fours. Um, as anything goes, something will be in style for a certain period amount of time and some things age better than others. And I think at the moment, if you look back at a lot of the, especially the American customized cars in the 1990s, the Boyd Connington era, you know, before chip Foose got around, it was right, right before then that whole nineties custom scene with the pastel colors, with the weird looking seats and the funky wheels and all that stuff that those cars have become so heavily outdated where if you look at them, you know, exactly when they're built. And if they're not, if they're not done perfectly tastefully with a really nice color palette, then the first thing you look at when you look at one of those cars is, well, it's going to be an extremely small window buyer And if that's the case, they're not going to want to pay full tilt for it, and they're probably going to want to repaint it and redo some stuff. So it's just staying relevant with the trends of what is hot in the customizing world. And obviously that was then, but it's not now. And obviously with where we're going, with the the top-of-the-shelf technology, with this really, really deep clean paint jobs with the metallic flakes or matte, matte finishes, you know that again, like the '90s, like Boyd Coddington styled cars. I I just don't think they're aging well. And that group of people who really really love those when those cars were customized like that again, are uh, moving on down the road. Should you say?
0: Yeah, and it's funny because the one I picked is a Pierce Arrow hot rod, which I've custom. I've never seen a Pierce Arrow before. That's why I kind of picked it. But it you can really see it. And and I'll give the example of a '32 ford hot rod you know that's probably one of the most you know modified ones out there and i asked i was asked to do an appraisal on one that was red and it had red and white striped leather seats inside you know and a lot of red and a lot of chrome and it was cool i mean it had magnesium wheels from the period it had Arden heads on a ford flathead oh. which was really cool yeah oh, that was really cool but you know if you look at those today they're all dark colors or black with burgundy interior with leather straps you know i mean there is totally not what people are looking for right now now we'll be curious to see if they do come back maybe in another 15 years or so where oh you got an original coddington you know or you got original foos that's unmolested kind of like you see people appreciating the hot rods that were modified in period you know they're out of out of flavor for 30 years and now they're, you know, Oh, that's a, uh, you know, that's a real period done hot ride. You know, it's a 32, but it was done in 54, you know, or something like that. Oh, that,
1: that stuff is extremely hot. I mean, even, even for me, when I've, I mean, I I was just uh, this last weekend at the James Dean festival show in Fairmount, Indiana, there are two big shows that, and the ducktail run car show, which are two of the best car shows you'll never hear about if you're not in the Mm -hmm. Midwest where I know DuckTale, there's no cars newer than 1975 allowed, and most cars in there are going to be American. But the amount of very, very cool 20s, 30s, 40s, hot rods, you know, the big 50s custom cars, you got the flames, you got the pinstripes. And especially up there, the chopped lead sled Mercs, man, you see a ton of them up there. And seeing those cars are really cool. But again, I went through, and that's why it brought me up to bring this up. you, I was walking through one area that had legitimately 25 late 40s and early 50s Mercs. It was absolutely a treat to see. There were a couple that you could very much tell that were done 30 years ago, and they stuck out like a sore thumb. And then you had a couple bone stock restored ones and then you had a couple of them that looked like they could have been customized in the 50s or 60s and then you had one of them that was a state-of-the-art drop-down lead right. sled with an extremely crazy gorgeous candy apple paint diamond stitch interior probably had uh 250k thrown at it and it still had a flathead in it which was wicked cool
0: oh that's cool yeah so
1: it's it's just finding that right balance from the custom cars. You gotta you gotta spec it right. You gotta have the right parts, and you gotta have a very cohesive idea of what you want. Or if not, it is going to be dated, and it will not be worth nearly as much as the car was built twenty years. Yeah, ago.
0: that's such a such a common theme there, right? Yep. All right, let's move on to a hot one. We got three more here. Special unmodified 1990s Japanese car. So I pulled up this 1989 Skyline, Nissan Skyline R32 TR. Yes. I, I thought I had some pictures I could scroll through, but apparently I don't. Okay. So again, I agree with you, but tell me uh, your thought process on this one.
1: Well, uh, as a lot of people know, the Fast and Furious movie series that kicked a lot of things off in the stateside for the Japanese sports cars obviously the super was popular here but over in the states no one knew about the skyline because they weren't legal but then when paul walker starts driving around the silver and blue r34 and it's got that built rb26 and it's flying down the back roads and it's got all the cool lights on the wings and you know, it's making all the great sounds, and it's just like, man, it's it's a Japanese muscle car because it's got the right edges, and it's it really took over an entire generation of people, not just one, multiple.
0: Right. So right. when
1: I'm when I'm going to cars and coffees, and sixteen year old kids are showing up, they're obsessed with them. Yeah. Forty year olds are obsessed with them. So you have this huge group of people that are not in money yet, or are just starting to become in money. And these cars will always, always be popular. And now parts are starting to become available stateside. Right, yeah. The R34s now are legal stateside. The Supers are always been hot here. Uh, The 300ZX twin turbo cars, I think those will catch up. Uh, 3,000 GTs, I mean, there's such a huge group of those cars. They were attainable, they were achievable, but they were quick, and they looked cool. So that really is the next generation of what you grew up with as the muscle car era, that is going to be my generations growing up. is going to be the supercars and the tuner cars. Because when I was a, let's just say six, seven year old kid, 2004, 2003, the Camaro wasn't around. Challenger wasn't around. The charger had just come back as a four door sedan. Wasn't excited. Um, the Mustang finally was doing something, but it only had 295 horsepower, and it just kind right. of bulky. And then, at least the Corvette was doing something, but the muscle car scene was dead. It was dead. So the only muscle cars that we cared about were the ones that were in movies that were from the 70s, the red yeah. and black 70 Chevelles, the yeah. cars like that. So those cars have exponential amount of movement, and so many of them, so many have been modified. That finding a bone stock car with all the original parts yeah. with service documents. I mean, that that is going to be a big, big, big deal.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. That's awesome. And for the record, I wasn't in the muscle car era. But my problem was, is when I was 16, you know, that's late 80s. There was, like you said, nothing there. I mean, a '50 Mustang was the coolest thing out there. Right. And that which I still love. All right. Two more. <laughs> Ones that's not hot would be oddballs. Now, you didn't specify what you meant by that, but I picked a Sudebaker Avanti, which I know those are a little bit hot. I, I don't yes. want to say. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're cool. They're oddballs, <laughs> but tell me what you meant by oddballs that are not hot right now while I scroll through these pictures of this Avanti.
1: It's we're we're in this part of the market where the really weird niche cars, even if they have a small little following, and even if they are really wicked cool, is they just kind of fall underneath the undertones of say if it's Nivani, people will always talk about the Corvettes. People will always talk about Cobras, even recreation cobras. You know, people will talk about, you know, some of the pretty European sports cars that were GT based. And then just the Avani sits there. You know, and the styling on that car is unique, obviously. I personally love an Avani. That's one of my favorite cars. I will own an Avani at some point.
0: But I think it's cool, but I think it's ugly. But I still think it's cool. I would love right. to have one. So so that's the polarizing yeah. car
1: too. And, and a lot of the a lot of the weird cars like that. I mean, um, you go to the early 50s when you have all these unique little specials built, when you get the um let's see like the 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 you know the nash healy like i think it's a cool car but it falls into a really really weird niche little market the kaiser darren you know you got just all these funky little cars the kaiser manhattans you know it doesn't have to be a two door sports car but those niche niche market cars is they won't be growing the the basis of those cars will not be growing because whatever niche they would have had has been established years ago. So it will have to take something very, very large and monumental to make them become worth more because I don't see as much as I love Ivani's. And for me personally, I don't mind this because I want one at some point. I really don't ever see those cars going up much ever. You know, Right. It it'll just it'll it'll literally just go with the the price of the dollar. I, I don't think that car will ever shift. And again, it's cars that are shifting are cars that are important to a lot of people. And when you get those little weird niches, they're only important to a certain amount of people. And you know, say if that market has you know, like for example, those Nash Heelys. You know, you get maybe a couple thousand people who really 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 are excited about that car right it's not really going to push a market and that market's going to get smaller it's going to change so there has to be something that really pushes a market and it's not because it's low production it's just because they're oddballs
0: yeah it's interesting so as i'm flipping through these pictures i ran out of cool pictures of the avanti Well, that's okay. Uh, It's interesting, your comments there, because I think something else that relates to would be the orphan car brands. Now, this is from a guy who just bought a Pontiac GTO. Uh, I think that's an outlier because it's considered one of the first muscle cars, obviously. Um, But, you know, and also
1: it was a mainstay of General Motors for years, you know.
0: Right. But, you know, nobody's driving a Pontiac today where they want to know the history of the brand. You know, there's not that tie to today. You know, on somebody's right. like nobody's pining for a Saturn right now. You know, right. So you know, the fact that they no longer build them today, I I do think will have effect on the prices of some of the older cars yeah. from that particular brand. All right, we're gonna go out on a high note. A hot car. This one, I don't know if I agree with you, but I want to hear you. 1999 Ferrari 355. Tell us why this is hot right now.
1: It's got to be a gated manual one. There is a reason for that. Um, I think that car, again, is another car it's been slept on, just like the 993. Uh, great chassis. I know they're not the easiest to ma- to maintain, but if you look at just what happened in Auburn uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a green over saddle gated manual 1999 F355. That sold for over two hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And again, if it's gated manual, the right spec, uh, and the design on that is—it's the last of the wedge-shaped Ferrari, which a lot of people forget about because they went to the three hundred and sixty over that, you know. And some people really didn't care for the three hundred and sixty because it was bubbly. Some people love it, but if you're a fan of Ferrari, from right after, you know, Enzo really stepped away when they started going to the 512BB, when they went to the 308, the 355 is really the last car of that lineage. And also with the manual transmission, it's one of the last Ferraris, you know, that you could get with the manual. Obviously, they went through the early mid 2000s, but uh, it kind of hits that sweet spot where it's not in your face, but it's a really, really cool niche enthusiast car that, with time, I think will just keep aging and aging. And again, with those, it has to be down to good spec, good service history, and it has to be that six-speed gated manual.
0: Yeah, and the reason I wasn't necessarily agreeing with you is because I've, I know the service on these, a lot of engine out services on this particular car, so... Uh, quite a few of the difficulties were solved with the 360 from a maintenance perspective. So you have to really calculate that in when you're looking at buying one of these to make sure that that has been done when factoring into the price. So um, yeah, very interesting. Well, I appreciate you. uh, Let me stop sharing here. I appreciate your time today, Josh. Thanks for uh, for joining us. Any other things you wanted to mention before uh, we move on?
1: Well, I just want to say to you a huge congrats on what you've had going on on both GTO fronts, (laughs) your personal gold GTO score from Pontiac, and obviously what you've been able to uh, help out with in a very large way with RM Subbies and the 250. So obviously a huge bit of good luck coming your way when that car rolls across the stage in November. And, uh, yeah, no, I think we got a a very interesting fall and winter coming up. Uh, See where the economy shifts. See if, obviously, the GTO breaks records. And at this point, you know, we got Hershey and a couple others. But it's pretty much now the GTO and then build up to uh, all the Scottsdale and Kissimmee sales.
0: Well, it's interesting. So I appreciate it. That's awful nice. It's weird that I'm helping sell a Ferrari GTO and I get asked. To help sell a Pontiac GTO that I just had to buy, so that's really kind of crazy. So, since you brought it up, what is your number on the 250 GTO? What do you think it's going to hammer for?
1: Oh, that's tough. Well, obviously, this one has some serious, serious provenance with it. Obviously, ran at Le Mans is one of the two cars that was converted with the bigger engine and then obviously now is back with the correct 250 engine so
0: just to clarify there there were three four liters from the factory this is the only one that was then moved into a three liter so it's the only ferrari to have two engines transmissions from the factory okay okay so given given the
1: provenance, obviously the condition on the car is fantastic um i I was saying to my buddies, I'm thinking somewhere right around the seventy two seventy five mark, that is just a number in my head. I think I've been hearing rumors of anywhere from as low as sixty, which I think it'll very, very heavily eclipse that, um, but it's high as a hundred. So I'm like, you know what? Um, given what um, you know, given what some other, two fifties have sold for privately. Cause I know there was one in Chicago that sold privately a handful of years ago for 70. Wasn't that right?
0: Yep. I've heard yeah. 67. I've heard 70. Yeah.
1: So I think this one will be just a little bit above that. So yeah, I'm going to do a very small window. I'm going to say 72 to 75, but We'll see what oh, do Do you have one? Are you even allowed to say what you think?
0: <laughs> I'm I'm aggressive. I think it's going to sell eighty to eighty five. I'm yep. aggressive. Uh, I've heard people saying it's going to hit a hundred. It's also the only factory works two fifty series one GTO that was owned and raced by Scuderia Ferrari. So um, it's really a super special car for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. I'm 80 to 85. You're at right, 72 to 75.
1: Yeah, and I hope I'm wrong for your case.
0: <laughs> well, either way, I'll buy you a beer. We'll figure it out.
1: I like it. Cool.
0: <laughs> All right, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us on the Collector Car Podcast, buddy.
1: Greg, thank you for having me on. As usual, looking forward to hopefully being back in the near future, and uh, hopefully seeing you guys at a RM Sotheby's or other automotive events here in the Midwest soon.